You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Hey, here's a little bit of Bible trivia for you. Did you know that Aaron was three years older than Moses? Hello? Y'all knew that? Well, uh, good. Well, that was in verse 7. That's kind of interesting. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 uh, when they spoke to Pharaoh. The other interesting thing about that is this. They're 80 and 83 when they get started in ministry. So I don't care how old you are, you don't age out of ministry. As long as God's got you here, God's got something for you to do. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles. We're looking at Exodus. uh, And I've shared with you before, the whole of Exodus, it's not about Moses. It's not about the Hebrews. It's not about the wandering in the wilderness. It's about God. And uh, Exodus, to me, is kind of the revelation of the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, the book of Revelation shows us uh, a little bit, even though it's not always understandable, a word about the future, what's going to come. Uh, The book of Exodus is that for the Old Testament. It is showing the redemption and the Messiah and God's plan of redemption that is to come in Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll go to chapter 5, I want to introduce you. Moses said a little more than, hey, Pharaoh, let my, you know, God said, let my people go. In chapter 5, verse 1, listen to what he says there. He comes and he says, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, the word celebrate there is, a, it's a verb and it's descriptive of what is to go on in the midst of worship. It is a verb that describes worship. It is what God intends for us to do to celebrate. Now, I've often thought of getting Kirkwood to baptize, cool in the gang, and sing the song, celebrate, come on everybody, you know, celebration time, come on. Well, that's worship. That's what God intends worship to be. It's to be something that is, you're not coming into an execution, you're coming in here to celebrate. And so God says, let my people go so that they can come out here and celebrate a feast to me. Now, watch the second time this is used. He comes in chapter 7 and he says this in verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, he's going to say that six times. Chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 8, verse uh, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13, and chapter 10, verse 3. He's going to say that six times. Let them come and serve me. Now, let me give you a little more insight into this. The word serve literally literally can mean labor, work. It can, it can, 
it can also be translated bondage, but the whole concept is this. When God says, let them come out here and serve me, that's the word, you will serve who you worship. Whatever God you worship, whatever your God is, you're going to serve that God. You're going to work and labor for that God. And so what you're coming to right here, and what I want you to see this morning is this, you're coming to a battle over the issue of worship. Now, Baptists are no strangers to worship wars. Uh, I've lived through a little bit of it. Thank the Lord I didn't go through a lot of it. Thank the Lord there has never been an issue about music or the worship that we have here. I'm just thankful for that. You should be thankful for that. It has literally torn churches apart and generations apart and Christians apart. Uh, but you're coming to a battle over this whole issue of worship. So the foundation of all of this is the worship of God. And you're going to see God as he will take on the gods of Egypt and will show and demonstrate his power over them. Now, we have divided up. We're in Exodus. I've uh, taken the Ten Commandments, and uh, some of our staff are doing those on Wednesday night. And you, listen, you can get off work. You can drive here, meet your family, have dinner here, uh, put the kids. We've got things for kids from, you know, from the time they're in the cradle all the way up through high school, college meets at that time as well, youth are meeting. You can come in here for an in-depth Bible study in the Ten Commandments. I was able to come to one this past Wednesday night. It's great, um, really fascinating. So if you like in-depth Bible study, we've got it right here Wednesday nights. So now I came to the question, I did that with the Ten Commandments, what do I do with the Ten Plagues? Do I take a Sunday and go over each plague? Because some of you are wondering, well, how long are you going to be in Exodus? It's going to be a while. Um, but if I had done a Sunday on each plague, that would add 10 more Sundays. So I'm going to package it all up and look at what is really going on instead of spending a Sunday on each plague. I'm going to tell you the bottom line is that God is challenging the gods of Egypt and the whole issue of worship uh, between he and Pharaoh, between God and Pharaoh. So God is saying, let my people come out and celebrate and serve me. Pharaoh is saying, they're going to stay here in the land and they're going to serve me because in serving me, they have no choice but to worship me. He believed himself to be a God. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh himself was a son of Ra, the son of God, he, the son of God, that he was a God himself. So now, I want to get you there, and I want you to see this, is we're going to look at these plagues. Did we ever get the 10 plagues, guys, up? Uh, right there. The Nile turns to blood. Now, keep those up there for just a little bit. I'm going to give you a couple of things. I'm going to stop preaching, and I'm going to give you a little bit of teaching here about these plagues so you can kind of look at that as I go through it. Uh, the first thing is this, the first nine. Let's don't deal with plague number 10 right yet. We're going to get to that, and I'll deal with that by itself. Each of these, are they come in cycles. So now watch this. The first cycle, plague number one, four, and seven. Do you see that? Nile turns to blood, number four flies, number seven, hail. You come to that, and what you've got here is this. Moses goes in the morning to tell Pharaoh that those three plagues are coming. You come to the second cycle, two, five, and eight, 
Moses comes to Pharaoh's palace and he tells him that these plagues are going to come. And the last cycle, three, six, and nine, are totally unannounced. Moses never announces that those plagues are going to take place. They just come on the land. The great uh, Jewish commentator, uh, Umberto Casuto, says that these plagues come in pairs. Now look at this, the first two, uh, one and two, then three and four, five, six, seven, eight, and then nine and ten. Look at what uh, this Jewish commentator says about that. Uh, The first two, blood and frogs, affect the Nile, and they worshipped both of those. They worshipped the Nile, they thought that the Nile was the creator of life, and they worshipped the frogs. Uh, They worshipped everything, by the way. Uh, Then you come to the gnats and the flies, both insects, gnats and flies. In fact, South Carolina is still under the plague of gnats right now. Uh, Gnats and flies, that's where I grew up. Gnats and flies, they're both insects. They were both worshipped by the Egyptian. Uh, You come now to the next set, and uh, pestilence on the livestock and boils on man. You come to sores on the cattle and animals, boils on man. Uh, You've got disease on both of those. Then you come to seven and eight, hail and locusts. That affects the crops. Those two things destroy the crops. And then you come to nine, darkness is temporary. And 10, death of the firstborn, that's eternal darkness. So you've got them paired up there. And then uh, there are those who say that what has happened here with the plagues on Egypt is that God has taken creation and turned it upside down. That he goes back and he kind of takes the creation of the world, Genesis 1 and 2, and he turns it upside down. He separates the water from the dry land, and uh, here he turns the water to blood, and the dust of the earth becomes lice. Uh, Number two, he causes vegetation to grow, but here he destroys all the crops, all the vegetation. Number three, he created the seas to swarm with life, and now the fish die and frogs come up out out of the Nile and overrun the land. Number four, God creates animals and people, but now the disease comes upon both of them. Number five, he separates light and darkness, but now there's nothing but darkness. So you begin to see this is what God does. This is the power of God. God says, I'm going to lay my hand. If you come back here to chapter 7, he says, Pharaoh's not going to let you go. But listen, let me tell you, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, uh, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. God says, this is what happens to a nation when they will not worship me. This is what happened to a people when they disregard my call to worship me. This is what happens when people reject my word. So God gives us a very clear picture of what happens to nations and to people who will not, his judgment will eventually fall on every one of those. And so in the midst of all of these plagues that come on Egypt, There is this constant back and forth with Pharaoh and Moses. Uh, There will be a number of plagues, and and then Pharaoh will call Moses in, and he will say, okay, this is what I want you to do. Uh, I'm going to let you go and worship, uh, but you got to do this, but you got to do that. But there is a constant calling from Pharaoh to Moses to compromise worship, 
Now, I want you just to let that sink in. I want you to think about that. This whole issue is Pharaoh giving little bits of ground saying, I'm going to compromise. I'm going to, I want you to compromise. I want you to compromise. I want you to compromise. Let me tell you something. The world always calls on the people of God to compromise their worship of God. Always asking us. And let me tell you, it is, it is greater today than ever before in this country. And so I want you to look now because I'm going to show you the four compromises that Pharaoh is calling for. So take your copy of God's Word, go to Exodus chapter 8 and verse 25. You've never seen me cover that much Scripture that fast. And may never again. Um, but go to chapter 8 now, and I'm going to come to verse 25, and this is the first compromise that deals with worship. And the compromise is this, worship without change. Worship without change. So here are the plagues that come. You've got the Nile turns to blood, frogs over run the land, insects come. So Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, okay, 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 enough. Go sacrifice to your God within the lands. You see the compromise there? If you don't read this carefully and think about it, you'll move right on by that. He says, but you do it in the land. You don't do what God said. Go a three days journey out to celebrate me of the land of Egypt, but you come, you sacrifice to your God within the land. Well, that's a little bit more reasonable, don't you think, Moses? And Moses is going to say, no, that's not what God said. I can't do that because that's not the word of God to come and just worship in the land. Now, Egypt was always known as the land of bondage. It was always known as the land of slavery, the house of slavery, the house of bondage. Bondage to what? Sin. Slavery to what? Sin. That's the picture of Egypt. It is the house of bondage to sin, the house of slavery to sin. So he's saying this, listen, you stay right here in your sin and you worship God if you must. You worship God. It's okay. You come to church. You, you just come on to church. That's all right. So long as you do not leave and change your life. You don't have to leave your lifestyle. You don't have to give up what makes you happy. You don't have to change the things that you do Monday through a Saturday. If you're going to go worship, just go worship, but don't dare change. Don't get away from the bondage of sin. Don't get away from the slavery to sin. Satan comes and says, it's okay, I'll let you go. If you got to go down there to that church, go to that church, but don't change your lifestyle. Don't change your attitude. Don't change your mindset. For goodness sake, don't let worship ruin your life. I've watched a preacher, nationally known preacher, all week this week uh, say that this is exactly what is fine for them. He says, it's okay. Bring your sin to the church. It's all right, come on and worship God. And you don't have to change anything about the sin in your life. In fact, the sin he was referring to, he goes to specific passages and he says those are just clobber passages. Now here's the interesting thing. This guy has set himself up to know which passages you don't have to pay attention to. They're clobber passages. (laughs) 
no need for you to change your sin. Come on and worship. You don't have to change one thing in your life. It's all right. That's what Pharaoh called for. You do this. You go sacrifice to God. Go worship your God. But listen, whatever you do, don't change. Let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. He comes and he says, this is the second compromise in worship. Worship without commitment. You, you don't need to make a commitment. Now, Moses speaks back now to Pharaoh in verse 27, chapter 8, and he says, we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. I can't do that. I, I can't just, you know, stay here in the land to do. That's not what God has called us to do. So Pharaoh comes and he kind of adjusts again in verse 28. And Pharaoh said, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far. Make supplication for me. Now I'm going to take that last little bit right there. And I'm going to tell you what Pharaoh's doing. I've seen it multiple times through 40-plus years of ministry. Make supplication for me. He wanted Moses to think, well, now, Moses, I'm becoming a little sympathetic to you. I'm listening a little bit to what you're saying. I'm going to come your way. I've had people all through my 40-plus years of ministry concede to do all kind of things, lead me to believe that they're going to do all kind of things in an attempt to manipulate me to give them what they want. Oh, I'm, I'm going to come to that church. Oh, I'm going to make that decision. Oh, I'm going to get baptized. Oh, we're going to do this. We're close. But now first this. Nope. There's got to be a commitment to Christ first. There has to be a surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ first in your life. Well, that's what he's doing here. He's trying to manipulate Moses at this point, and he tells Moses this. He says, I'll let you go. You go sacrifice to the Lord your God, only you shall not go very far. Listen, don't go overboard in this thing called worship. Don't get fanatical. For crying out loud, don't go so overboard that you say everything here is the authority of the Word of God. Don't go so far as to call it in there. Don't be a fundamentalist. There's nobody that's a fundamentalist anymore. You don't want people making fun of you. I don't give a flying rip. I'm as fundamental as you can get. And if that bothers you, I hold to the fundamentals of God's Word. I'm 65. I don't care anymore. (laughs) I ain't trying to win any kind of prize. He says, listen, you can do it. Just don't go far. Don't buy into all of that. Don't get so heavily involved in it that people are going to start making fun of you. Let me tell you something, folks. Uh, Once you come to Jesus Christ, if you come to Christ and you commit your life to him, Satan's not going to walk away from you. Over the years, I've recommended a book more than any other book that I can remember, and that's the book uh, by C.S. Lewis, The Screw Tape Letters. I love it. It's a great little book. I haven't read it in years. I probably ought to pull it down and read it again. But I read it every year I was in college, and then I, I read it for a couple of years out of college, and I've gone back a time or two and picked it up and reread. It's not a hard read at all. It's fascinating. It's fun. It really gives you an insight into how Satan pursues you to keep you from making a decision for Christ. And then once you make a decision for Christ, how he does everything to get your mind off of making a commitment, off of being committed, out of living it out. And so the whole story is, is that, listen, when you come to Christ, Satan doesn't come up and just go, well, I give up on him. I'll just 
go to get somebody else now. He's a Christian. That, 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 that doesn't happen that way. In fact, let me show you something. Two things I want to show you in the New Testament. One in Mark's gospel, chapter 1. Go to Mark chapter 1. You need to understand Satan is here in this service. I can tell you he is. When you come into this church, you, you should never expect that, well, this is a place where Satan can't come. He can't. That, listen, Satan's not a vampire. Um, he, he's a, he is a de- supernatural demonic being. And by the way, let me tell you, he is real. Now, most Christians, you know 43% of Baptists don't believe in a personal devil? Well, I'm, show up at my house tomorrow morning. I'll introduce you to him. I'll tell you he's real. He rides my back starting Monday mornings through the week. I've fought hell by the acre this week. I've had a wife that's been laid up, but I have had other stuff come at me. And I'm telling you, it's coming at me because of things that I'm involved in that I'm doing as far as ministry grow, goes. He's real. Listen, he's in church. You got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1? Look at verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum. This is Jesus. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. By the way, every Sabbath day we see Jesus, he's in church. Ah. Oh. Jesus actually goes to church. And an imperfect church it is at that. They try to kill him. And he still goes. He goes back. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. He had a demon. And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Zip it. Now, this is not a Baptist preacher preaching. This is Jesus teaching. And there's a man with a demon that is there in the service. And he stands up, and in the service, he cries out, and he says, I know exactly who you are. Have you come to deal with us? Have you come to do something with us? Have you come to destroy us? He wanted to know. There's the demon right there. I can tell you something, Satan is here. He's here doing everything he can to distract us and to draw our mind off of any commitment that we need to make to him. In fact, you go over to Luke chapter 4 when Satan comes to tempt Jesus and listen to Luke 4 verse 13. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He said there will be a time with Jesus when he will be weaker than he is now and I will come back and I will tempt him at that time. And you get to the Garden of Gethsemane and there in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is Jesus doing? He is in a spiritual battle so intense that he is sweating blood that these little capillaries, these little vessels along the forehead here have burst out of the intense stress and anxiety that he is under, and he's just sweating blood drops. He's in a battle. Let me tell you something. Just because you're saved does not mean that Satan does not come after you anymore. He will come after you and worship And in worship, he'll say, listen, you can go worship, but you don't have to make a commitment. 
You don't have to come to an invitation. You don't have to decide anything. Just go if you've got to go, but don't make any commitment. Let me give you the third thing that he's doing here. The third thing that he says here, get over to chapter 10 and verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8, now you've had the plague on the cattle, you've had the plague on humankind, the boils on humanity, you've had the plague of hail, and now the plague of locusts is about to come. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in. Chapter 10 of Exodus, verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. And who are the ones that are going? Now what he's going to do in this third compromise is say you can worship without conviction. You don't have to have conviction to worship. So Moses said, verse 9, we shall go with our young and our old and our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he, that's Pharaoh, said to them, thus may the Lord be with you if ever I let your little ones go. He says, you'll know. If you ever walk out of here with your children, you'll know that your God's really God. He said, because I ain't going to let you do it. You're not going to do it with me. Take heed. Evil is in your mind. Now, this is Pharaoh speaking to Moses, and he says, evil is in your mind. Not so, Pharaoh says. Go now. You're not going to do it under my watch. Not going to happen. You're not going to take these children. I'm going to keep these children and these wives and these cattle, these flocks and herds here. He says, uh, I'm going to keep them here because you men will come back to them. If I let you all go, I don't know that you're not just going to keep going. So I'm just going to let the men go. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord. If there's a man that has conviction to go out, let him go out, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out of the of Pharaoh's presence. That is, Pharaoh told him, you can take the men, but the women, the children, the flocks, the herds, they're staying here. And then they picked up sticks and they drove them out of the throne room of Pharaoh. Or whips, or whatever. You can take the men. What he's saying in this is that you can worship without any conviction whatsoever. Just go out there and go through the motions and all of that and then come back and live life the way you used to live life. Just go out there and do that. And if you haven't experienced great, that's fine. But you you don't have to pass that down to your wife and you don't have to pass that down to the next generation, to the children here. Now I want to talk about that for a minute because I want to tell you something that everywhere in Scripture where you come across this, Uh, you come across the idea that the man is the one who leads the wife and the children and the family in worship every single time. It is not a wife's place or responsibility to walk in and tell the husband to get up and take him to church. It is the man's place to get up and set the example and lead the wife and lead the children. My mama did that for years after my daddy came back from World War II. Uh, The story is she got up every Sunday morning. She took the children. She said, I stopped and I looked at your dad and said, don't you want to go to church with us? It was a church planter, a church planter in Augusta, Georgia that came to see my dad and led my dad to the Lord. His name was uh, uh, Bill Shoemaker. Uh, And he led my dad to the Lord. And from that moment on, I want to tell you something. My dad led our family. And it was obvious my dad led He came, he got us up. You didn't get a vote on that. If you were living under his roof, when I was 17, 18 years old, about to go off to college, 
My dad said, come on, get up. We're going to go to church. Why don't we go? My dad said, hey, I didn't ask for a vote on this. We're not voting around here on this. This is what we do. This is who we are. And right here, they're telling the men, you go do it, but don't have an influence on your wife. Don't try to influence the next generation. I want to tell you something. Whoever wants the next generation bad enough are going to get the next generation. And the question is, are we, do we want the next generation? Because the world is after them. Skajathani is a, he's a really interesting writer. I, I like to read his stuff, uh, writer, speaker. And uh, he tells the story of his little five-year-old girl, Zoe, who came home from kindergarten, and they had a little project, and the project was they had to identify uh, brands, market brands, um, you know, from companies and corporations and businesses. And so they got to talking about that, and she already knew. Five years of age, she already knew Pizza Hut brand. She knew what that was. She knew Target brand. She knew Legos. She got home, and she already knew the Disney brand. She knew Jello, and she knew Goldfish. So he said, we were sitting there walking, working through all of that, and she got a glass of water, and she drank it. And she said, when she drank the water all down, she looked in the bottom of the glass, and she said, Ikea. There was an Ikea, you know, the, the word Ikea right there because they would bought the glasses at Ikea. She knew that. Now, listen to what Jathani said. Should it scare me that my five-year-old had memorized more corporate brands than Bible verses? Also scary was the fact that no one had taught her to identify logos. We didn't have corporate logo flashcard drills at home. Zoe internalized these logos simply by living for five years in a brand-saturated culture. If you don't think this culture is not impacting your children, you, you, you just listen to this. By the time a child is 10 years of age, they know some four hundred corporate logos. There is an intention in this. And the intention is that 10-year-old is going to become a 16-year-old with a license and a job, prayerfully a job. And they're going to get the keys to the car and 50 bucks from the job in their pocket, and they're going to the mall and they will buy whatever brand has impressed them the most. 300 dollar Nikes. 300 dollar Nike. Y'all just sitting there. I can hear my daddy in the back of my head right now. 300 dollar pair of Nikes. That's why you get teenagers that now they go to the Gap, they go to American Eagle, they go to whatever they go to. They go to these things and they buy a pair of $300 jeans that are cut here and cut here and cut you know where. <laughs> cut. Now, I can get a pair of $29 Levi's, and I have always, since I was six years old, carried a pocket knife. Because in the South, what does a boy do? You carry a pocket knife. And I, I can, listen, give me $250, and I'll, I guarantee you I can slice them up really good for you.
the world is having an impact on our children. And the vast majority of us as parents sit back and let it take place. We don't want to be bothered. Listen, let me ask you something, parents. Are you interested enough in your child to ensure that the Word of God not only gets into their mind, but in their heart? Is that the priority of your life? It should be the priority of your life. Listen, I want to tell you something. I want my children to go to heaven. I want every one of my grandchildren to know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. That's more important to me than what alma mater they go to. It's more important to me than anything else to impress and influence them. I should be and we should be setting a model, living out a commitment to Jesus Christ. Pharaoh comes and he says, here, listen, you can worship without conviction. Parents, have some conviction. Let me give you the fourth thing. And the fourth thing is this. It's still there in chapter 10, but look over to verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 24. Darkness now has settled all over the land. In verse 21, it says, even a darkness which may be felt... Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Now watch this because here comes the fourth compromise. He says, go worship without any concession. You don't have to give your God anything. Go worship, but you don't have to give him anything. Go serve the Lord your God. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. He's giving it now. Okay, take your wives, take your children. But you leave your flocks and your herds here. You leave your wallet here. You leave your finances here. You leave your savings account here. You go and worship God, and you don't have to give your God anything. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock, now listen, let me tell you, Moses gets on a roll, buddy. He's getting bold now. Listen to what he says. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. Yes. Not a dollar in my bank account I withhold from God. Everything I have is God's. My home, my job, my closet, my education, everything that is in savings, everything that is in my retirement account, all of it is God's. Satan will come and he will work on you at this point, probably more than any other point. I can go and worship and I can tip God. Worship without concession. Compromise. You don't have to do that. Other people in there will do that. Other folks will do that. Listen, other people are getting the blessing from doing it. I can say, in all honesty, all my life I have tithed. I had to teach my wife to tithe. Her daddy tithed, and, um, but he never taught his children to tithe. I taught my children to tithe. This is what we give to God, and I don't mean we give God a tip. I don't put 10 or $20 in the offering plate. We give God a tenth of everything. In fact, we tithe a little more than a tenth. I've never missed a dollar that I've given God. Never missed a dollar that I've given God. And I can stand here and say, my daddy lived that. My daddy gave 20% of what he had. 
You say, I'm real uncomfortable now. Well, good. Because let me tell you something. This is an area you, you don't have to do it. If you're not giving, you don't have to give. You say, well, now, you know, preacher, you're just, you're just won't. Listen, we, we finished the year with $1.6 million to the good, this church. $1.6 million to the good. To God be the glory, great things he has done. One point, so I don't know who's giving, but I want to tell you this. Somebody's giving, and I can tell you this. Somebody's getting a blessing. If you never learn to trust God with your finances, why do you think I would think you've trusted God with your eternal security? You said, hey, preacher, this is really, you know, we're giving folks. Yes, you are. You, you are an amazing congregation of giving people. I just want all of you who are not to understand you can trust God with that as much as you can trust him with your eternal salvation. And he will bless your life for it. And it is a compromise to do anything else. I'm preaching it because it's just here in the text. I rarely ever speak about giving or tithing, but I've, it's in the text, so what do I do with it? Ignore it? No. I preach it. I preach it. It brings a joy to your life. To be able to give to ministries, to people who need it, it's an absolute joy in life. What's the fun in life of having anything if you can't share it with somebody? And so God has blessed us to the point to where it is a joy in our home that we're able to give and do things beyond what God has required. And I've never missed it. But it it builds joy in your life. That's worship. That joy is what God wants us to experience when we come together for worship. And you'll never be able to do it when this compromise is going on in your worship. George Friedrich Handel, in a, in a horrible time in his life, in 1741, he was going blind. The guy was losing his sight. This composer, Handel. Going blind, he had been through a series of losses, all kind of financial losses, all kind of setbacks personally. And in 1741, you didn't declare bankruptcy. They just threw you in prison. You didn't have the law courts to protect you if you owed everybody money. If you were in debt and you couldn't pay it back, they put you in debtor's prison. And George Friedrich Handel was right there. He was right there at being thrown into debtor's prison. When he sits down and in 24 days, he writes the Messiah. The oratorio, the Messiah. And in the middle of that is that great, wonderful, incredible piece of music. Maybe one of the greatest pieces of music, if not the greatest piece of music ever written Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. And he said when he sat down to write that, he said what he heard in his heart and in his mind, he said, I nearly burst open. I nearly exploded with joy. In the, in the midst of going blind, in the midst of all of these failures, in the midst of going to debtor's prison, he said there was an unbelievable joy when I began to write this piece of music, the Hallelujah Chorus. And when he was finished, they say that someone walked in the room to check on him, and he was, he was stretched out over a piece of furniture like a dish rag, sobbing, completely exhausted and sobbing. 
And they got to him and they said, listen, are you okay? Are you all right? And in the in-between sobs, he looked up and he said, it was as if I saw heaven stretched out before me and the throne of God with God sitting on it and the angels of heaven all attending him. Worship. Worship. To see God like that to experience the joy of being in the presence of Almighty God. Worship. That'll never happen as long as we compromise. Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed. The fact of the matter is you can never worship God if you've never been saved by Jesus Christ. Worship is not even a possibility. You can participate in things, you can sing, but you can never go before the presence of Almighty God apart from yielding your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's the one, the only one, that can reconcile you to God. And when you come to Him, and you call out to him and you confess that you're a sinner and you repent of your sin and you call on him. To save you and you put your faith and your trust in him and he gives you mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. He showers it on you. He then reconciles you to God, the Father so that there is now peace between you. No longer animosity, no longer rebellion, no longer this separation. But now you come before God and there's peace. How about you this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you ever trusted Him and given your heart to Him? Why not right now? Others of you here this morning, listen, Satan in an invitation, it's just like we, be, we get up and we dig our heels in. I'll do anything but move. And yet the Spirit is trying to draw you. Come. I want fellowship with you. God is saying, come, talk to me. Come fellowship with me. Come get on your face before me. Come get on your knees before me. Others of you that are here, you've visited here and you know Jesus Christ. Listen, the Lord is saying, come. This is a place where you're being fed the Word of God. Come be a part of the ministry. Come be a part of the family here. Lord, that's the invitation for those that are lost, for those that are saved, for those that need a church home. I pray, Father, that you would be honored in this invitation. No compromise, but just worship from our heart. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at Valleydale.